0: Good morning. Will you rise for the reading of God's word? A reading is found from Acts 9, verses 1 through 31. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, "Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him, so that he might regain his sight." But Ananias answered, "Lord." I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, "'Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel.' for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, "'Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit.' And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, "'He is the Son of God.'" And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word of the Lord.
1: What a mighty God we serve and giving honor to that great God, the Father, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Again, with great, great thanksgiving to our resting shepherd, Pastor Gerald, who is enjoying his sabbatical with his family. And we are hoping that he is getting great rest as he soon prepares to come back and serve us. And to all the elders and all of you, it is good to be here again to preach the word of God and to share with all you, my brothers and my sisters, all the saints of God, you also who are watching at a distance too. It is good to be among all the saints of God. Let us um, turn now in prayer and then hear the preaching of God's word. Father, we look to you to speak to us and to open up this passage to us. It is so familiar to us. We need your spirit to speak to every heart and mind. So would you give us the grace and mercy and kindness to hear, thus saith the Lord, and to be obedient to all we hear. Would you give me grace and strength and courage to preach? Or would your spirit be strong in this place? For those God who are outside of your mercy at the moment, would you pour out mercy as they hear and listen? Would you open new eyes to Christ today? Would you add people to the kingdom of God? Now we continue to commend this hour to you with thanks for the worship and all we have already seen. We bless you for your goodness to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In February, 1989, shortly after the publication of his fourth novel, British Indian writer Sir Ahmed Salman Rushdie found himself to be in trouble with the Muslim world. The novel, The Satanic Verses, was perceived to be a story written against the prophet Muhammad, depicting him as one who inserted verses into the Quran. Although that is not what Rushdie did in the novel, his book was burned in the Muslim world. The supreme leader of Iran issued a fatwa a scholarly legal opinion against Rushdie. Like a man who turned on the mob, Rushdie, the blasphemer against Islam, became a marked man after a failed attempt on his life in September 1989, in which two floors of the hotel in which he was staying was taken out by an Islamic suicide bomber Rushdie temporarily went into a lower profile in Europe Salman Rushdie was a man with a death sentence like Rushdie every church has a death sentence written on it now saying this is not to contradict Matthew 16 in which Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail instead It is a recognition that the church is made of believers. And Jesus told the earliest believers not to be surprised that the world hates them because he chose them out of the world. He told them that people would deliver them up to tribulation and put them to death and they and you and I would be hated by all nations for his namesake. It is common to identify a dead church as one that has lost passionate worship. Yet with a greater sense of death, many local assemblies close their doors never to assemble again. The cause might be that the membership has been mowed down by guerrillas in war-torn West Africa or by leaders in a communist state. In the West, it is more likely that death is due or curse to watching the numbers of members dwindle over a period of several years without any concept of why there is a slide or how to stop this drift into oblivion. Some churches are dying as their memberships watch people depart from the pews in preface preference for remote worship forever when in-person gathering is possible. All churches start with the hope of growth. None start with the hope of becoming a museum, an abandoned building, or a faded memory of a huge membership that disappeared with the passing of time. As great and as thriving as Calvary Memorial Church is, one day we could find a death notice on our front doors. No more Game On, no more Calvary Ed, no more support of mission partners, no theologically rich Sunday services, nothing. All of it could be gone. One church growth observer has said that churches start to die as soon as they stop giving life. That is, if we want our church to continue and not die, we must make sure that we continue to grow our church through the making of new converts. There is great truth to this for a loss in focusing on evangelism and gaining new believers will lead to stagnation and death like a lake that never gains fresh water. However, Conversions and new members are not enough, for a church can die doctrinally while still maintaining all the actions of life, including the claim of multiple baptisms and a swelling membership. Instead, what we find in the book of Acts is that if we want to stop our church from ever going the way of death and to continue in life and in growth, every person who calls Calvary Memorial home as a member or as a regular attender needs to make sure that we bring about life that reflects the way of Christ. We each need to pray and work humbly towards seeing conversions to Christ and everything that should attend conversions, things as important to life in the church as conversion itself. In Acts 9, we record the conversion of Saul. After the day of Pentecost, this probably is the most important event in the history of the church until we get to the Edict of Constantine that made Christianity the official religion of the Roman world. New Testament scholar William Larkin finds even more significance in the events in this chapter. He writes... The most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, is the conversion of Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. If Saul had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would be missing 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament and Christianity's early major expansion to the Gentiles. Larkin goes on to say, humanly speaking, without Paul, Christianity would probably be of only antiquarian or arcane interest, like the Dead Sea Scrolls community or the Samaritans. Later known to us as Paul, Saul intended to bring about the systematic death of the church. He approved of Stephen's execution in Acts 8, holding the clothes of his murderers and then dragging believers off to prison, leading to the scattering of the church from Jerusalem into the world. Not satisfied with that, Saul now has secured permission from the high priest to go as far as Damascus to drag the scattered members of the church, both men and women, back to Jerusalem for imprisonment or to have them executed. If he is successful, he will exterminate the church and its blasphemous challenge to Jerusalem. There never will be a conversion of a Cornelius or a Lydia. There will be no salvation of people in the regions of Galatia or in Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, or Rome. There will not be a church. But along the way, Paul has a series of experiences that show him the way of Christ. These experiences, which should be had of people as they come into our fellowship, take what would have been a death sentence for the church and turn it into life. These experiences of life in the experience of Saul are four. They are conversion, inclusion, proclamation, and reception. First, there is a conversion of the one intent on destroying the way. Paul is on the way from Damascus to Jerusalem, we see in verse 3. In a play on words, Luke tells us that Paul is intent on destroying those who belong to the way. An early designation for those following the way of Christ. Thinking he is serving God, he is going the wrong way with hostility like that of the new atheist against the gospel. But Jesus blinds him to his way and shows him another way. Paul's conversion story involves revelation of his sin, identity of Jesus as Lord, obedience to Christ, a verifiable experience of conversion, new sight, and being led and learning in humility. Paul has gone from being a persecutor, blasphemer, and violent man to a Christian. And the church has gone from being in the clutches of death to remain in the land of the living. Everyone who comes to Christ does not need a spectacular event or story of being at the lowest point of life before conversion. Everyone does not need a testimony that gains credibility credibility through sympathy. You know, like those sappy introductions NBC gives us for our Olympic athletes. Everybody doesn't need one of those. Calling on Christ as a child raised in a decidedly Christian home, maybe even a wealthy one, is just as significant as calling on Christ while living in rebellion in a home riddled with opioids or ripped apart by a parent's indiscretion on a white-collar job. Calling on Christ, believing on Christ, and yielding a life to Christ is what is significant. What is important is that Christ met you in your sin informed you of your sinfulness and your need for him, you acknowledged him as Lord, followed through in obedience, gained eyes to see the things of Christ, and have placed yourself in a humble position to grow as a believer. What is important is that you are no longer on the other side of the fence with Saul, the church hater, but that you are now on this side of the fence with Paul, the convert, who is another life not death added to the church second in this chapter there is inclusion of the convert by one or by those who already know the straight way first we see the conversion of one intent on destroying the way but now there's the inclusion of this convert by those who already know the straight way It's great that Paul is converted. However, Paul can't see anything right now. All he knows is the last thing he saw, this vision of the exalted Christ. But what is next? How does he become part of the church rather than having only a partial vision of salvation? God conscripts a disciple named Ananias into service and he tells him to go to a street called Straight and lay his hands on Saul for Saul is waiting for him to do so. Ananias initially bristles and protests knowing of Paul's reputation. Still tying the Lord to his church, Ananias says it is His saints, Paul, has come to destroy. And it is the mentioning of Jesus' name that Paul seeks to end. Now, I can't blame Ananias for hesitating to accept this assignment. I mean, who would want to stare down this gun barrel? What disciple would want to go face a man who has come with the express purposes of incarcerating and annihilating believers? Because Paul is on straight street, are we now supposed to believe that he has gone straight before the Lord? The Lord, however will have no challenges to his sovereignty. He tells Ananias to go and in mercy he reveals to him his plan for Saul to be a witness to Gentiles, kings and Israel, things we all will see in the book of Acts. By telling Ananias his plans for Saul, the Lord reveals that Saul is just as straight as Ananias on the identity of Christ and his understanding of the gospel and that Ananias is just as blind as Saul to the plan of God. Now having a vision from the Lord like Saul, Ananias goes to Saul. Without Ananias's obedience, the church still has the potential to die. Paul will not have his eyes opened And the church does not welcome in this ill-fitted brother with a questionable past. Instead, only those converted without hostility in their background or murder or blasphemy would be received into the church, which would be the path to the church's slow death. So placing his hands on Saul, Ananias utters the words of inclusion that must have brought comfort to Paul's heart. Brother Saul, brother. Brother Saul, Saul is included in the family of God. He is not the former persecutor who must sit alone like a pariah in some corner away from the true believers. He is included with the saints. He will be filled with the spirit. And when the scales fall from his eyes, he receives baptism into the family of God just like all the rest of us. Now rather than speak of the significance of this episode to our Christian lives right now at this point in the sermon, I'm going to save it for my fourth point and the application. Third, in our conversion story we see proclamation by the convert about a different way. The proclamation by the convert about a different way. The converted Saul spends a few days with the disciples in fellowship. Immediately he sets out proclaiming the gospel. Immediately he sets out telling people that Jesus is the son of God. Saul now sees that Jesus participates in the divine nature and that he has a unique relationship with God the Father. Saul now knows that Stephen was right in proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected one for Jesus is the anointed one of God. Saul has no evangelism training. He has no course in the use of a tract. And the Romans road has not yet been written because... He hasn't yet written it. He has a conversion experience and he is included in the family of God. That seems to have led naturally into telling people who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. Notice that Saul goes right back to the places where people knew who he used to be. In fact, they do exactly what we expect to happen when we go back to places of our previous life and show up zealous to tell people about Jesus. They pull out his past record and say, isn't that the dude that used to hate Christians and, and try to kill them? but Paul or Saul is unfazed and he is unflappable when it comes to pointing out his very known and ugly past because he has met Jesus. He is glad to tell anyone who will listen Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is now Participating in a different way of life. And that is the way to new life for anyone who believes that message. It is the way to maintaining the life of the church as people believe and are added. Saul has a new lease on life. And a different message than the one he had been proclaiming against the way. He is confounding Jewish arguments against Jesus and proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This brings death threats and attempts on Saul's life. The great irony here is so evident. Saul wanted to destroy the church because it was a threat to Judaism. Saul meets Jesus and now faces the very threats for which he has secured letters with the goal of inflicting it on others. He wanted to make sure that the church died. Now he wants to make others find life and participate in the church while the Jews want to do away with the church by doing away with Saul. As said in an earlier sermon in the new testament we are not looking at people being ridiculed ostracized or uninvited to family gatherings we are looking at death threats for living for jesus as a normal part of the christian life the jews plot to kill paul they station people to keep an eye out for saul leaving or entering into the city. They are like an unrighteous version of the port authority looking for just one person to snuff out. What can the church now do to keep Saul from dying at their hands? They can take the man who now preaches a different way and get him out of the city a different way. Like finding defunct rail lines under a city or unfamiliar sewer tunnels. They find a way out of the city that is not routine. It is different. The Holy Spirit made some disciple realize that there was a God-appointed hole in the wall of the city that was big enough through which to fit Paul and then ran back and said to everyone, I got it. I know what to do. You know, Joseph's house is built into the wall at the corner of 6th and Simeon Street. I think we can lower Saul out of the city through one of his house's windows. Who said you couldn't be creative and outsmart the world if you knew Jesus? Who said that they had to stay there like crashed dummies and just take what was coming to them? They took Saul and got him away from the city a different way so that he could preach differently than he did previously. So that he could continue preaching eternal life in Jesus. So here we are again in Acts and our journey as believers trying to please Jesus. We see again prescriptively Paul proclaiming Jesus, and that without gaining any evangelism training. He has the message of the gospel and his personal story of conversion. One cannot argue with the story when it is paired with the gospel we also see again prescriptively believers facing fierce opposition the kind that wants to get rid of us yet escaping opposition is not prescriptive for when Paul later faces threats in the book of Acts he waves off concerns of believers and says that he is willing to die for his faith so we have Bold preaching on the one hand and acceptance of fierce opposition toward our faith on the other. Both are part of a different way of living. Both are part of a different message than the one you lived in the past. This is the way of life for the church. If we neglect either one, if we neglect bold proclamation of the gospel or if we neglect accepting fierce opposition toward the gospel, the gospel message falls short. Miss either one and there is no preaching of the gospel and there is no more new birth. Again. As we see this bold proclamation and this fierce opposition, it means that we need to cry out to the Lord for him to fill this place up with the Spirit of God and align our wills with his will daily, including exercising courage in his name wisely, but harmlessly, lovingly, yet graciously, so that we will see the church live and thrive in the world. Fourth, in this conversion story, we see reception of the convert as a fellow saint through one advocating that he is living a new way. We see reception of the convert Saul as a fellow saint through one advocating that he is living a new way. The disciples in Damascus are successful in getting Saul out of the city and to Jerusalem. Since they received this former Christian hater in Damascus, certainly the disciples in Jerusalem will receive him, including the 12. But the disciples will not have Saul in their circles. They think... Him claiming to be a believer is just a trick for him to kill them. It's a trap. It's a lie. There is no way that Jesus took a man as vile as Saul, transformed him, and has now made him a preacher of life rather than a taker of death. So driven by their fears of losing their own lives, they will not believe the power of God to change a life. So we are going to need some help if Saul is going to be received into the church on equal footing. Oh, look. Remember that guy named Joseph who believers nicknamed Barnabas because he is so encouraging to the saints? Remember that Cyprusian-born Levite who the church allowed to be his authentic self rather than assimilating him into the board collective? Now his encouraging, authentic self is needed and he comes to advocate for the disciples to receive Saul, an outsider of a different type, an authentically former murderer, blasphemer, and violent man. Barnabas simply clarifies two things about Saul, the only two things that matter. He has met Jesus So he is a convert and he preaches Jesus boldly, so he is zealous for Jesus and obedient. That's all that matters, period. There is no asterisk next to Saul's conversion. There is no one set to watch to make sure he is really converted. And there's no talk about, well, what if that Saul guy messes up? He is converted like all believers he is proclaiming Jesus boldly like all believers should do Saul now is one of us Barnabas's advocacy for Saul is enough for the disciples it is enough for Saul to freely move among them in fellowship when he is in Jerusalem so that the disciples witness new life in the church it is enough for him to keep reasoning with Greek speaking Jews about Jesus so that he keeps seeking life to be added to the saints. It is enough for him to keep experiencing the threats that should seek to take away his life and life from the church. And Barnabas's advocacy was enough for the disciples in Jerusalem to protect Paul's life as did the disciples in Damascus so that he could keep preaching this different message of life. Barnabas stood up to say that Saul's conversion means he is living a new way and therefore there is no reason that the church should not receive him gladly. I think there are two responses to this passage if we are going to turn the church's death sentence into life and see that every convert who makes a way into Calvary Memorial Church has the attending experiences that promote life for each person and the entire church that everyone gets conversion and they also get inclusion proclamation and reception. First. Let's think of being inclusive with the same priority. We think of being exclusionary. It's easy for maturing evangelicals to think of being exclusionary. We must be exclusionary in terms of guarding sound doctrine in our churches and promoting the holiness of the church, lest the gospel be lost. We have to keep our antennas of truth finely tuned and walk in a manner that evidences new life. But being inclusive takes more work at least three things fight against us being inclusive naturally. First, society has moved away from being neighborly to being private and mean. As far back as 1993, historian David Wells in his work No Place for Truth recorded that our in our country, we had moved away from being a people who had front porches on our houses to people who wanted private decks and patios in our backyards so that rather than speaking to people as they passed by on the street and waving at them, we could just keep to ourselves. I hope everyone is laughing here, but he did say that. Now, sprinkle in years of demand for greater privacy Add an ethos that allows everyone to speak almost anything in social media or in a meeting of local, state, or national governing officials, and then top that off with pent-up frustration of a pandemic, and now we have mean girls and boys that do much more than just wear pink on Wednesdays. New York Times contributing writer Timothy Egan was right last week to express concern that our nation has become, quote, people without a heart, unable to see half of their countrymen and country women as anything but the enemy. Second, we learn in childhood to exclude the one who does not fit our norms and to make in and out affinity groups. We learned that in childhood. By the second day of pre-K, children are establishing who is in and who is out. Sadly, Rarely do the in and out needles move. It takes the working of the spirit of God to say that all persons should be included in the good and the friendships we enjoy. It takes the spirit of God to make openings in our cherished friendship groups for the person who does not fall lock and step into our perceived perfection of weight, height, income, marital or sexual status, home size, voice, volume or tone, family history, education, occupation or complexion. Third, once we create affinity groups in the church, we want them to continue without change. Now, I am guilty of this, even though I used to be the small groups pastor here, guilty as charged. Recently, when someone asked me about our small group splitting, I said no, I do not want to have to think again about starting friendships with a fourth small group or what would be the third reiteration of our small group. I just said no. See I liked my previous small groups and I've kept meaningful relationships with most of those members. And I really like my present small group, so no, I'm sorry. We are fitting nicely into each other's lives. No one gets in my group, and no one gets out of this group. I'm sorry, no. Just, that's just the way it is. Then Pam comes along and advocates for, for adding people to our group. And I realize that my miserly attempts to wall off our small group are not thinking about the message of the gospel, the growth of our membership, or the healing of the nations, which is what all of this is about. All of this is about the healing of the nations. The nations need healing, and there are people from all nationalities, income levels, countries, legal statuses, sexualities, and all types of families and past that I, that we, need to embrace once they name the name of Jesus. I can't think only of myself like the disciples who feared for their safety when the one who would be later known as the Apostle Paul tried to join them. So yes, I just implied it. I know that's your special group, formal or informal, Let someone else in, and not simply someone else who meets your social affinities and ideas of perfection. Welcome in someone who is a fellow convert just looking to be received into the body, remembering that both Barnabas the Cyprusian Levite and Paul the former murderer were once sitting in somebody's circle of Christian fellowship. I'm saying even more, be intentionally inclusive, knowing especially that many things make people feel like outsiders and that it's easier to sit in affinity groups and be cliquish rather than be receptive. Everyone who names the name of Jesus and hopes to proclaim his name is a person to be welcomed into our groups. Our penchant for exclusion will take care of all the other concerns. Second, let's be sensitive to those too traumatized to return temporarily to the in-person gatherings, but let's not use trauma as an excuse for avoiding participating in in in-person gatherings into perpetuity. Our neighborly and pastoral care for the traumatized must be robust and full of grace. Some people are survivors of things most of us hope we will never see or experience, whether that be war, gun violence, physical battery, extreme poverty with periods of starvation, sexual abuse, trafficking, or emotional manipulation. Others have endured the worst at the hands of churches and people claiming to be believers. So we understand if these survivors wish to draw away from being around people and want to limit their friendships and fellowships and involvements because of a concern about trust or reliving a previous experience, we should all understand that. But as a secondary trauma survivor who has children who are primary and or secondary trauma survivors. With all sensitivity I want to say something theological to primary and secondary trauma survivors that should influence how we think of gathering and how we think of spiritual formation. As we continue to read Acts. Saul will be one of the greatest survivors of wrongdoing in the history of the church, yet, he will continue to gather with believers as often as he can. As Paul, Saul later will say that he experienced perils at the hands of his own countrymen and that there were those who were in jail with him who preached the gospel hoping to cause him harm. There were those who were his closest companions in ministry that abandoned him at his greatest hour of need. Saul was beaten countless times, not just five times for specific legal judgment, but he was beaten countless times because he will speak of it in the plural. Saul has no idea when he goes from city to city who is going to turn on him or try to attack him in a synagogue or in a temple. He lives carrying around all of his experiences, but it does not deter him from gathering. When he is physically and medically able to gather with the saints of God, he seeks it, whether an immediate house church setting or to be in Jerusalem around thousands for the festival of Pentecost. He does not let trauma or thoughts of shame stop him from gathering with believers. Trauma is a reason to pause seek help, gain appropriate boundaries, and be cautious. But please do not allow it to pull you away forever from gathering physically with the members of your local body we need you we need your pain we need your perspective we need your encouragement to grow we need to learn to serve you and many others who are broken and are scared and are nearly done with the church because of the harm that churches have caused them churches that did not address the abuse in your home or that addressed it too harshly and actually made you the greater victim and you need us to show you the Love, grace, and mercy and goodness of Christ, you need to see from us that there actually are faithful, trustworthy, safe people in this world who have the character of Jesus to match their claims of loving Jesus. So that your church does not die, so that we do not die of offering Christ's love to the world and working in conjunction with your personal mental health care professionals and local shepherds, please do not let trauma keep you away from other saints permanently. If you do, the church is headed toward death rather than life. Salman Rushdie, who I talked about in the beginning, once living with a $4 million bounty on his head, now is living openly in New York City. He's a writer in residence at New York University School of Journalism. He says he catches the subway openly without bodyguards around him. He still is alive and well. He had to live in hiding for 10 years until that fatwa was lifted off his head. And then he decided to spend three more years in hiding just to make sure it was safe. One news article reports that Iranian radicals and their state media still have a $4 million bounty on his head. Rushdie has published 15 more books since writing the Satanic Verses. However, Hamid Bashi, A professor of comparative literature and longtime admirer of Rushdie says that the Rushdie who wrote after the fatwa is like an imposter of the one who boldly wrote before the fatwa. He says, Rushdie died and never came back after a blindfolded revolutionary zealot put a price on his head, killed his person, confused his persona, corrupted his politics, and turned what was left into a pestiferous Islamophobe. The Bashi is saying that had we had the original Rushdie without the fatwa on his head, we would have a whole different set of literature. But now we have one not as great as the one we could have had. The last verse in this section says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Can you imagine what would have happened if after Jesus met Saul, Ananias, the disciples in Damascus, Barnabas. And or the disciples in Jerusalem had turned Paul away because of his past, because of what he used to be. But their reception of Paul's conversion experiences strengthened the church and it multiplied with life rather than died. Now, I could see believers no longer concerned about being arrested by Paul growing in their own zeal and boldness. I could imagine them saying to one another, you know, Jesus got a hold of that murderous Paul and now he's one of us. We have nothing to fear. They could see Paul on the first day of the week and say, hey, brother Saul. And he could say, hey, brother, and make no reference to the letters from the high priest. Because they included this convert, a jailer, and his whole family in Philippi meet salvation. The Philippians get to read the words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Chorus will birth saints saints, and learn that in a moment we shall all be changed. And these momentary and light afflictions will give way to a greater weight of glory. People in Ephesus will be filled with the Spirit in In Rome, there will not be a charge against God's elect. Timothy will preach the word in and out of season. Philemon will receive back a runaway slave as his Christian brother. And all the nations will hear the message of healing that is found in Jesus. That's because when conversion experience is grounded in the gospel... The church will grow properly rather than face death because we are being like Jesus who does the converting, the including, the proclaiming, and the receiving in us so that his church will have life rather than have death. Let's pray. I am guilty, Father, because it's so easy to want to be only around those we perceive to be like us. And somehow we measure ourselves. And some don't fit up to the measure. Father, because we know Christ, we know that none of us measure up. And it's all about your grace and your mercy. So God, would you make many souls to come forth in this place and all over Oak Park and all over Chicagoland. We cry out to you that many that have backgrounds, as muddled as Paul's, many who have backgrounds that seem pristine, that if they were without Christ, that you would use your great power to show them the way of Christ through us and through many others and then give us grace to receive them as sisters and brothers changed by the power of God. Bless Calvary Memorial, God. You have been faithful to us for over a hundred years. May there be a hundred more years of faithfulness left in us years until you return to get us. Bless your people now and fill us with your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. We turn now to the Lord's Supper. And I understand that the elements have been distributed to everyone. If you are without elements, there are boxes of the elements in the foyer, in the front and in the foyer that are in the back. We invite you to participate with us if you are a believer. We invite you to self-examine yourself. And we also ask that you as parents would be wise toward allowing the participation of your children for this is a sacred event. We remember what Scripture says to us that on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed that he took the bread and after he blessed it he broke it and said this is my body which is broken for you as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me. Let us all Take the bread together. Amen. Likewise, after supper, we are told in scripture that he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, or as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Let us drink together. Let us pray. Father, we bless you for the name of Christ and for him giving his body for us and for him giving his blood for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.